Good morning, everyone. Every summer, our high school students have the opportunity to go on some kind of a trip, and the purpose of these trips rotates on kind of a three-year cycle. One year is a mission trip to Mexico where they build homes for needy families with Amora Ministries. And they don't just build houses, they also build community and fellowship and see how God is at work through the Mexican church in the lives of some very hardworking but impoverished people. The next year is usually a training year where they focus in on discipleship and evangelism. But in the third year, they normally do some kind of a cross-cultural experience here in the U.S., and usually the focus is on racial reconciliation and the gospel. That's what they're going to be doing this summer as they head down to Jackson, Mississippi. And I know how impactful this focus on racial reconciliation can be from seeing what the trip did for my son when he went to Mississippi as a high school student standing in the spot where, in Jackson, where civil rights activist Medgar Evers was assassinated, I mean, it really affected him. And as we're take, talking about this summer's high school trip to Jackson and how important it is for students to be exposed to the issues of racial reconciliation in the gospel, you know, given what's been going on in our nation, we realized, hey, the adults need this too, maybe even more so. This isn't just a kid's issue. Our country is so polarized right now. And racial relationships and, and the fight against the sin of racism are right there at the top of the list as to why we are so polarized. So we as adult Christians need to confront the issue of reconcil racial reconciliation in the gospel so we can make sure that we're in line with Jesus, the word of God, and Christ's kingdom. We need to make sure our hearts are right before the Lord and that we're doing what we can in our church and in our larger community to pursue God's way of justice and wholeness for all. If we're true to the gospel, then the church should be at the center of racial reconciliation, not on the sidelines sitting on our hands. This is exactly what the church of Jesus Christ does, reconcile. According to 2 Corinthians 5, God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. First, reconciling people to God, but also reconciling people to each other. And fundamentally, the church exists to take the culture, the customs, the practices of a faraway place called heaven and inject them into this place called earth. So much so that our homes and our neighborhoods, our cities, begin to look like carbon copies of heaven. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus told us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? We're to bring God's way to this world, and the church exists to transform our communities by the grace and love and justice of God. God's kingdom, God's rule, right here. We're his ambassadors, his secret agents, his envoys. We should be leaving gospel footprints all over the place. We should be injecting into our towns and our relationships uh, an eternal heavenly reality. Our schools should be different our, because the church is here. Families should be strengthened because of the gospel. Our crime rate should decrease because we're living for Christ. Poverty should be addressed if we are actually living out the kingdom. True justice should uh, be the norm for every person if God's way rules. Our society should be better. If we're not transformational, if we're not working for the kingdom of God, then why are we here? Specifically, we should take our heavenly multi-ethic reality and inject it here. You see, when God gave the Apostle John a vision of Christ triumphant in heaven, he wrote it down in his book called Revelation. 
And he says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every tribe, nation, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. That's Revelation chapter 7. John did not receive a monochrome vision of heaven, in which there was only one type of person. John saw blacks, whites, Asians, Latinos, Arabs, Israelis, all peoples together, a multi-ethnic community, all worshiping the same one eternal Lord. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we see it in heaven, we should try to do it here on earth. We should try to make it a reality here. And that's the prayer Jesus taught us to pray. And so we see the same thing in the book of Acts. When the church was just being launched in Acts chapter 2. When the apostles first preach about Jesus. Listen to the makeup of the early church starting in Acts 2 verse 5. And there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Well, one thing it means is that the gospel, as preached by the apostles, says that all ethnicities are welcome. All are invited, all are included as part of God's forever family. Fifteen different distinct ethnicities are mentioned here. From the very first day of the church of Jesus Christ, it was a multiracial, multicultural powerhouse. From day one, that's the way God planned it. That's the way Jesus wanted his people to be. Jesus gave to the apostles a multiracial vision for his kingdom, where everyone, no matter their skin color or language, had the exact same access to the grace of God. Acts 17.25 When the Apostle Paul is giving his great sermon in Athens, he says this, God himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. You see, in the beginning, when God got it all started, we were all one. We share one common ancestor. We are all related. And guess what? The science of genetics now bears that out. Geneticists have traced back the DNA of ethnic groups from all over the world to a single common female ancestor whom they reluctantly call Genetic Eve, who lives somewhere in northern Africa. Amazing, right? We are all family regardless of how much melatonin is in our skin pigmentation. So as part of the gospel message, is, is any form of division or oppression based on race is contrary to the will of God. As Pastor Rick Warren once said, racism isn't a skin issue, it's a sin issue. Racism in the church and society exists because people are diverging from biblical truth. And to our shame, too often the Christians have supported a false theology of racial superiority that was used to justify slavery and apartheid and lots of other things. Pastor Tony Evans writes that only by returning to biblical truth as our overarching standard by which else, everything else is measured can we accurately view racial unity and have it seen and actualized. Racial reconciliation isn't a liberal issue, not a conservative issue, it's a biblical issue. 
It can get politicized, of course, but that should not stop us or dissuade us from zealously pursuing God's vision for his world. Now, for the purposes of this series, we're primarily focusing in on racial reconciliation between whites and blacks, though certainly other ethnic groups and religious groups have experienced or are still experiencing racism and prejudice. Asians and Latinos, Hispanics, Semitic peoples, all kinds of racism and prejudice, and so did other immigrant groups, the Italians and the Irish, the Poles and the Germans, each group met its own brand of prejudice. The difference with African-American experience is that racism became institutionalized through slavery, and the impact of that is still poisonous in our American culture. And as Christians, we have not been successful in bringing the kingdom of Christ to fruition in the area of racial reconciliation. Now, the early church, they didn't do this perfectly at all. In fact, they ran into some serious roadblocks in trying to live out God's vision of racial unity in his kingdom. Their issue was between ethnic Jews and the newer converts to Christ who were Gentiles or Romans, all ethnically non-Jewish people. They were called Gentiles. And so there was a lot of hostility between these groups that existed prior to the birth of the church, went back thousands of years And people don't automatically shed their old prejudices. Just because someone becomes a Christian doesn't mean that they automatically overcome their racist attitudes from their pre-Christian days. In the days of Jesus, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was divided into different courtyards. Only pure-blooded Jews could enter into the courtyard closest to the Holy of Holies, closest to the presence of their Yahweh God. Anyone else, even though Jewish, was excluded from the inner courtyard. The Gentiles, who were followers of Yahweh, were non-Israelites and therefore were considered to be ritually unclean. They were forbidden from passing through the gates into the inner courts. That temple was destroyed and flattened by the Romans in 70 AD, but in 1871, archaeologists actually found the dividing wall that separated out the court of the Gentiles. And on that wall, there was a sign that read, do not proceed any further for fear of death. And they even found stacks of of stones piled up by the gates just in case you were a Gentile and you didn't get the memo. And so that racial divide spilled over into the church and became a cancer that threatened the spread of the gospel. Paul had to address it head on, this issue of ongoing discrimination in the church. In Ephesians 2, he writes to the Gentile believers, verse 12, At one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Jesus Christ, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one, destroying the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And then later in verse 15, Christ's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Paul says that when Christ died, he dismantled this dividing wall of hostility. They were segregated from their Jewish brothers and sisters in the worship of God. But thanks be to Jesus, Paul says that when Christ died, he dismantled that wall. He tore it down. He hit it with a wrecking ball. He took a sledgehammer to that wall of racism that divided the early church. 
so that Jew and Gentile could come together equally as one people and worship Christ together. Now, the great tragedy of American Christianity is one of our deepest stains is that in large part, Christians have tried to rebuild that wall, the wall that Christ tore down. The history of churches in America is a history of rebuilding an unbiblical barrier. In 1787, two black men, uh, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones, were worshiping at St. George Methodist Episcopal Church in Philadelphia. Though whites and blacks worshiped in the same building, the blacks were required to sit in the back or on the outer edge of the sanctuary in what was called the Negro Pew or the African Corner. They didn't know that they were sitting in pews reserved for whites only, and the white trustees of the church were so appalled that they didn't even wait for the men to finish praying. They interrupted their prayers and threw them out of the church. The next day, the African Americans who were part of that Methodist church purchased a vacant blacksmith shop and started their own congregation. And that was the beginning of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the AME denomination. It was the first denomination founded solely on racial rather than theological grounds. And just about every African-American denomination started because our dear white brothers and sisters rebuilt this dividing wall of hostility. Even the white evangelical Christians who were the backbone of the abolitionist movement to end the evil of slavery, they were not really advocating for the full inclusion of African-Americans into white Christianity. Even when Christian denominations split over the issue of slavery, the northern churches still did not openly welcome African Americans into their folds as equals. The early church had to confront racism in its midst because it was an evil that offended against the kingdom vision of Christ. It was an impediment to spreading the gospel. And we have to confront it for the exact same reason. If we're ever to fulfill Jesus' petition in the Lord's Prayer, for his kingdom to come on earth, and the first thing we have to do is at least acknowledge that there is a problem with racism, that it is real and still exists in our culture and in our churches. And we have to take an honest look into our own hearts about how subtle uh, and also our not-so-subtle prejudices. I recently read a survey that said that there are approximately 300,000 congregations in America today, and that's all congregations uh, Jews, mosques, Mormon temples, everything that, everywhere people gather to worship. Sociologists determined that a multi-ethnic congregation is one in which no single ethnicity makes up more than 80% of those who come. That's kind of a 80-20 rule. If you apply that rule, only 7.5 of those 300,000 congregations are qualified as being multi-ethnic. And if you narrow that down just to Christian congregations, the number drops to 2.5. Just think about how sad a statistic that is. Right now, the norm for churches in America is to be an all-white church, all-black church, all-Asian church, all-Latino church. And even the greater tragedy is that we seem to be okay with that. We're okay with this dividing wall. We're okay with driving down the street and saying, well, that's the black church, and that's the white church, and that's the Korean church. We're okay with that. When Scripture says Jesus died to dismantle the dividing wall of hostility, and that his whole purpose was to create one new humanity. One new humanity. In Greek, in the New Testament, there are two predominant words for this word new. Neos and kinos. Neos speaks of something that is new as it relates to time. It's the latest thing, the latest iPhone, the latest uh, bestseller, uh, whatever it might be. 
But Paul does not use neos here. He uses the word kinos, which speaks of something new as it relates to a kind. It's like a new invention, something that never existed before. So while neos might be the latest Mercedes, kinos is the Model T, the very first car to be mass-produced. While neos might be the latest 747 to come off the assembly line, kinos is the Wright brothers playing at the beach at Kitty Hawk. In Ephesians 2, when Paul says Christ died to create a new humanity, this coming together of Jew and Gentile, it's the idea of kinos, the idea of invention, of something brand new. In other words, Christ died to create something that the world had really never seen before, a new way for human beings to be together where their differences were surrendered to something much larger. Jew and Gentile, people who hate each other in the world, coming together, doing life together, doing meals together, worshiping together. There was to be no example, there was no example of that kind of bonding in the ancient world. It was brand new in this thing called the church, a physical representation of God's multiracial kingdom. You see, the ancient church did not celebrate diversity. They lifted up unity. They uplifted what they had in common, which was the saving grace of Jesus. It was their shared commitment to Christ that brought them into unity with each other. If you read Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10, that primarily deals with reconciliation between God and people that were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But verses 11 through 22 deal all with horizontal reconciliation, people to people. And the message of Scripture is that you can't really have this horizontal reconciliation without first having the vertical with Christ. We can't really address the issues of racial reconciliation without also calling people to be reconciled to God. It is the gospel that has the power to bring people together. And when we get connected to our Lord Jesus, that's when our hearts can begin to change. That's when we can find the the strength to honestly face whatever prejudices lurk within the hidden corners of our hearts. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what gets a hold of us and creates a a longing, a longing to love and to embrace people who are different than we are because we all worship the same Lord. The gospel is what brings us together and gives us the power to overcome the sin of racism. When our high school kids go to Jackson this summer, they'll have a chance to meet a remarkable man named John Perkins. Since the 1960s, he's been an evangelical Christian pastor, a civil rights leader, community activist. He's authored more than 10 books on the topic of Christian racial reconciliation. In one of his books called One Blood, he writes this. We've been looking in all the wrong places for help in fighting for this battle of reconciliation. We've sought help from social service agencies and government programs, but this is something that requires divine power. He goes on to say that his model of developing true Christian community includes active partnerships with social service agencies and the government. But he warns against reducing reconciliation to a set of programs or policies. For him, it is profoundly a spiritual battle. And he writes again, there is more working against the church coming together across ethnic and cultural lines than just our personal prejudices. The enemy has staked out his claim on keeping us divided and keeping us from trusting each other, which is why prayer is the weapon of our warfare and why prayer is essential to the work of reconciliations. Christians should ask themselves, do we pray for reconciliation? 
Do we really pray for our nation? Do we really pray for unity in the body? Do we really pray for God's kingdom to come? Do you? In this morning message, I've, I've tried to lay out a biblical and theological foundation for us confronting racial reconciliation in our day and especially in the church. Next week, it's going to be a lot more practical, so I'm warning you ahead of time. Please don't come unless uh, you are really willing to let God shine his spotlight on the hidden pockets of prejudice in your heart because, friends, we all have them. The question is, will we be honest enough to look at them and confront the dark spots on our souls so that we can become more and more like Jesus Christ and be part of his kingdom solution? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, this is a very challenging topic and it's one that raises a lot of emotions in people's hearts. Sometimes we don't even know where those emotions come from, from our past experiences or our own uh, ways that we lean in terms of our feelings about a lot of these things. And so Lord, we want to be kingdom people. We want your kingdom to come. We want to pray with authenticity for your kingdom to come and that means a kingdom of right relationships and right racial relationships. Help us to be willing to really explore that, Lord, and to become agents of reconciliation in our church, in our homes, in our communities, and in this world. We thank you now in Christ's name. Amen.